I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today... Net artist and activist Mushan Zeraviv. There's something very naive about this idea that we can drive everything out of this abstraction, that we can think of everything through data, through these zeros and ones, and then from that understand it better. Mushan is going to share new forms of resistance and ways of turning the surveillance industry back on itself. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. So I'm way less worried about some group of Chinese hackers breaking into my bank account than I am the banks themselves. You know, details have already surfaced and they're out. And we all know now that more than a couple of million unauthorized Wells Fargo bank and credit card accounts were created on behalf of unwitting customers by bank employees trying to cash in on new account bonuses and various incentives. And, you know, the story blew up uh, last month and ultimately led to the, the CEO of the bank resigning as if somehow, well, you know, I'm going to fall on my sword and responsibilities with me, so I'll resign. And they're not giving him, you know, some extra millions of dollars. He's only, he's going to have to go off with just the tens of hundreds of whatever millions he has. Um, so there's some happiness, I guess, to, for us in that. But what a resignation like that 
Um, and this sort of, well, let's just kind of get back to normal and we're going to be extra good to our customers and we're going to talk to all our employees. You know, what that doesn't really solve is that if you've already fired 5,300 employees for opening up fake bank accounts or extra bank accounts for people and charging them all these extra fees and things. Maybe it's not the 5,300 employees who are so wrong, but the underlying system itself. How can this be considered sort of bad actors, these 5,300 of our however many tens of thousands of employees, but rather it's it's an indication of, of systemic institutionalized extraction that's been guiding banking for for decades, you know, if not much longer, as well as institutionalized cover up. Some of the uh, some of the bank employees, some of them started emailing me after the uh, revelations came out, partly because of my my books, you know, they're they're generally deconstructing this uh, kind of neoliberal nightmare that a lot of people are trying to live through. And uh, employees emailed me that when they went through their bank training, they were given a phone number to call at central command, you know, uh, at the national headquarters of the bank, a special sort of whistleblower number to call if they felt their branch was doing something that was unethical or that went against uh, the standard things that they were taught in their ethics classes. You know, it was sort of this way you could report on the bank without, you know, having to talk right to your boss. And what the bank ended up doing was a week or two later, employees who called that number and reported something going on at their branch, like opening up fake accounts for little old ladies against their knowledge and then charging them money, those employees ended up being fired. (laughs) They ended up being let go. So I started to get all these emails from employees who the few who were not among the 5,300 and other tens of thousands who opened up all these accounts, but the employees who tried to do the right thing, that thing that in theory they were being told, and that right thing feedback channel was being used for the opposite purpose. It was being used to eliminate human intervention, to, uh, uh, to eliminate any possibility of human self-regulation of this otherwise extractive system. And no, this is not the story of some digital technology thing, you know, going awry. Yes, the the digital technology and having records of your of banking customers, you know, it amplified these bank clerks ability to create the fake accounts in volume. You know, they could open up 30 accounts in in half an hour instead of doing all the paperwork and filling out cards. And it did distance them a little bit from the repercussions of their actions. You know, they weren't looking at the little old lady's face, you know, when they were stealing $50 a month from her because they just looked like numbers and spreadsheets. But the real driving force here are the incentives. It's both the incentives being given to employees to open up new credit card accounts, no matter the impact on the customers, as well as the incentives given to the banks themselves to further financialize our economy, no matter the impact on our lives and our worlds. So we're not watching an otherwise, you know, just and ethical banking system get corrupted by a single tainted 
credit card scheme. Rather, what we're watching is what we might call extreme capitalism at work. You know, banks don't make money by creating value. They no longer make money by helping people transact. No, they make money by extracting funds from anyone who wants to build a business or even just make transactions. And as long as the economy is growing... More businesses need loans, more people make purchases, and that means banks can continue to grow and please their shareholders, who we all know are addicted to growth and capital gains. But now that the economy is in the doldrums, now that growth is so super, super slow, banks have to resort to extraordinary measures to show growth the same growth that they used to show. You know, particularly when shareholders can just cash in their banking shares for those of high-tech stocks, which seem to have no problem shooting to the stratosphere, at least at this moment. You know, so to create growth synthetically, banks look to extract more money somehow from the same customers and transactions that are already there. You know, how do you create growth when there's no actual growth? They do it by selling New credit cards and higher fees, new loans with higher origination costs, or just worse terms on existing accounts and debt. How do you sell consumers on higher finance costs for the same old products? Well, there's good marketing in the form of slick TV commercials and good sales in the form of highly incentivized bank employees. Employees know if they don't meet the quotas on new new accounts by by reaching the the target set by their managers, then they may be next on the chopping block, right? They'll they'll get layoffs. The bank has to show growth. We're either going to show growth by you getting more accounts one way or another, or by us cutting your job, because then, you know, the 50 or 60,000 bucks we pay you, that ends up, you know, no longer taking away from our bottom line. So it's, (laughs) it's a real prisoner's dilemma that they try to put the employees in. So they think, what's the harm of opening a few new accounts? You know, particularly if everybody's doing it, that's what we call a company culture. Everybody's doing it. Or in this case, really, an industry culture. If you have an account at Wells Fargo, of course, close it and go to a community bank, go to a local bank. But really, if you have an account at any national investment house like Wells Fargo or Chase or Bank of America... These are businesses, these are generic, top-level, global businesses that make their money by extracting value from people and places. If you can't go to a credit union, which you should be able to, but if you don't want to go to a credit union, then at least go to a local savings and loan. The, the business model of a savings and loan is that they take, a, they take accounts, you, you basically borrow money from people, you open up You open up savings accounts for people, and then you use those savings to invest in local businesses and to invest in local mortgages. So the money that you're putting in the bank is being loaned to people who are building things where you live. So it's a circulatory model. You build something where you live, then you spend money there, then they end up putting something in their savings account, then you borrow from that savings account to do something that you need. And it's all circular. Everybody does better. As opposed to banks like Wells Fargo, they're not investing in you. They're not investing in communities. They're extracting all this money and then throwing it into derivatives and treasury bonds and buying money and doing credit default swaps, although they have a different name now, doing all sorts of insane things that don't actually contribute to the circulatory real economy. The only real solution here 
is for banks, like any businesses, not to be required to grow. Banks, particularly savings banks, are really more like utilities than businesses, you know, with a monopoly power on the ability to issue currency. They're in a unique role to be able to enable businesses of every other kind. This makes them at least as responsible to the public good as to their shareholders. By seeking to extract a higher percentage of our economic activity to pay for their financial services, they don't help anyone. Rather than promoting businesses, the banks serve as drag. Think about that for a minute. The banks are drag on the economy. They're no longer the wells of currency through which we prime the economy. They are the extractive force that slows down an economy. No, banks don't get to grow all the time, no matter what's happening in the real world. It is they who have hacked the economy to all of our detriment, and it's time to reject the premise of growth on which they are based. We're on Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens and online at teamhuman.fm. Please join Team Human, both as a listener and as a human teammate, or even as a supporter through the donation link at teamhuman.fm. It's not too late to reclaim planet Earth for its people, to give land and labor a voice along with capital, and to share our best strategies for mutual aid, environmental sustainability, and economic justice. In the real world, we humans have the home field advantage. Let's use it. So, you know, I'm teaching at CUNY now, and they've got this big money invested interest in what they're calling digital humanities. And I heard that and I was like, cool, this is us, the digital humanism people and people and yay. And what they're really doing is like, you know, using some weird search engine, big data technology to analyze every time that Shakespeare used the word thou in order to know, just really nail down for sure what he really meant and what was going on. Or we're going to look at the, the, the entire database of you know, late Renaissance literature to figure out. It's this, it's this almost you know, that moment when you're, when you're going on Wikipedia and there's a term that you're using and it turns out there's two articles. And then they say that word that I learned from Wikipedia. We're going to disambiguate this thing. We're going to nail down exactly what it is. It feels like, in some ways, your work is a response to this, this cold, hard belief that data can somehow put every little person and thing and idea in its proper place, that you're almost trying to, to mess that up. I mean, is that accurate? I think... I think it's messed up. I'm trying to fix it, right? Um, th- there's something there's something very naive about this idea that we can drive everything out of this abstraction. Like th- that we can think of everything through data, through these zeros and ones, and then from that understand it better. Now there are things that are very exciting about finding all of the vows. And then you see so much data beyond the, the amount that you can actually calculate or, or, uh, or analyze uh, without computers. And then the computers tell you something that you couldn't tell yourself. And you're like, whoa, 
I've found the truth that I could have never found otherwise. Now, that creates this cultural or political bias towards what we can calculate, right? That creates a, a situation where, where if you can't calculate it, it's, it's secondary. But you talk about, I mean, you use the term reambiguation. Yeah. In other words, as if to make it anomalous, make it strange, make it paradoxical, and thus more more human, I think. It's, it's both more human and, and kind of pushing the envelope. Creating um, uh, ambiguous uh, communication and information and, and culture is, is in a way saying, yes, it, it cannot uh, extract the value of being digitized the same way as, as all of these uh, um, natively zeros and ones communication that you want as like likes and wh whatever, things that are born in data. We want to expand the scope of our life. So your frustration, your technological frustration is good. Like you should be frustrated. If you cannot, ex uh, if you cannot uh, serve life in the way that we want to live it, then it's your problem. We're not going to stop uh, living our lives that, that way just so you can analyze and, and, and digitize it. So it's a form of, uh, uh, of both uh, uh, self-assertion and resistance. But what, what does it look like? So one of the ways it looks like is a project that, I, that I'm doing with uh, Daniel Howe and Helen Nissenbaum. It's called uh, Ad Nauseam. Ad Nauseam is a, is a browser plugin, essentially a, an ad blocker, that beyond just hiding the ads, it actually goes and clicks each one of them. So every ad that your browser encounters is clicked by, by this plugin. And what's the meaning of that? Is it well, going to open up all the windows in your so computer? It's, it's, so it's silent, silently clicking them. So, so it registers a click with, with the server. It creates the data of somebody clicked this ad without, without that actually happening. So it's both extremes. It's an ad blocker for the user, but it click on everything. Yeah, omnivorous uh, clicker on the others. Uh, and, and what it creates, basically, is a profile that makes no sense. It's an ambiguous profile. Like, If it makes sense, then it skews the whole data, especially as, as more and more people do that. And, and if it doesn't make sense, then they identify this, okay, this doesn't make sense. Let's get rid of this profile. It's broken. So we get uh, the best of both worlds. We don't see the, the annoying ads, and we, we perform. We perform to these data mining uh, algorithms that this is what you don't understand, and we're not going to make it easier for you because we are not like you. Another thing there, this approach of... Uh, resistance to data surveillance, saying, you, you, want, you wanted big data, you're so excited about big data, let's see how big can big data really get, right? Everything that has to do with big data has this assumption that all of the data would be useful. At the same time, if we actually perform the, uh, the way we live our lives, then that becomes much, much harder to, um, to survey. Now, of course, as they get more advanced, they can look at, oh, here's the, you know, 2% of users who use ad nauseum on their browsers. That's a huge data point because you're not, you can't use it on your GPS yet. You can't, I mean, there's all these other ways that they can still scrape your data. Well, well, actually, there are, uh, if you read um, Helen Isenbaum and Finn Brenton's book titled uh, Obfuscation, 
and they're uh, writing about the the technique and at the same time also featuring a lot of projects including ones that are that are obfuscating GPS data so so this is not a si singular project this is what we're trying to to present as a wider movement that is not kind of the crypto culture uh, I'm going to hide myself I'm going to hide in a box no the, the, this is really challenging the, the, the premises of big data. Because the problem that I have with crypto culture is that essentially what Google and WikiLeaks are saying is kind of the same. So Google is, is, uh, is saying this data represents you and therefore uh, we should collect all of it and, and act on it and sell it and so on. Sell the analysis or the, or the actions uh, based on it. But crypto culture basically says this data represents you, and this is who you are, and therefore you should hide. What we're right. trying it to say, it the reifies the importance the, of the data. It, it creates again these binaries, these zeros and ones. What we're trying to say, no, this actually does not represent us. It's so far from representing us, but it would represent us if we uh, minimize our lives to that, and that that's back to the reambiguation. Right. Well, if you just play along. If you play along, then your apps are going to know more about you and deliver you more of what you want. So Google is going to tell you, you know, you've got a meeting in 30 minutes. You better leave now, given current traffic. If you reambiguate all your data, then Google is not going to be able to give you that important, vital fact about your life. It's true. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm not going to say that there's no value in, in, in disambiguation. And, and I think there are things that, that we can disambiguate now. Traffic is actually one of them, uh, to a large degree. And, and I've been working with traffic data as well. But to extrapolate from, from that to everything? Yeah, but the less of a terrorist risk you are, then the faster airport line we can put you on. It's true. So the more data you give us, the more we know that you're not a threat, and the faster uh, travel you can do back and forth to Israel. Yeah, and, and then I have nothing to hide, and therefore I'm a... Yeah. And I should not have anything to hide, and then we're getting back but, to er Eric Schmidt's... you want to hide, uh, it's fine, and just wait on the longer line exactly. of the people who hide stuff. Exactly. So the amazing achievements, scientific achievements of, da of data analysis and advanced algorithms are extrapolating into, into culture. You know, it creates the, the, these serious people speaking dystopian science fiction as, as if it's utopia, like the Ray Kurzweil's of the world that are self-hating humans, right? Um, mm -hmm. They're like, look at this utopia of mass suicide, right? Let's all kill ourselves. And, but, but have floppy disks. <laughs> to, well, yeah, to, you upload well, something better, a little, you know, USB yeah. drive. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> like fast, like, like amazing uh, like, uh, zip drives, right? Yeah, they're <laughs> computers that will carry on your consciousness after yeah. you're gone. Yeah, your hardware would die, but then you have a backup, so that's fine. Yeah, at least for your data, but not for your uh, awareness of it is the trick. But, 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 but the, the basic assumption is that what we've learned that we can do with transportation or, 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 or you know, search engines or, and stuff like that, that extrapolates to everything. And the, there's this um, amazing assertions that if you haven't made yourself machine readable, then there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with this thing that you're doing. It's not being efficient. It's not fast enough. It's not, and well, and it, and it plays into the youth culture now where kids think if they haven't gotten likes 
for something, then it didn't really happen on some level. You know, the, the question they ask whenever I'm out shooting a documentary, and there's the person that we're shooting, kids always come up, they don't have no idea who it is, but they always ask, is he famous? Or is she famous? That's all they care about. Yeah. Not, is this a singer? What did they do? And even if they are, they are famous. Oh, great. Can I have a selfie with them? Just the fame itself. So that's a, a data-driven approach to culture. Mm -hmm. If you grow up with that, I'm not sure exactly how we flip that. So, so th this is a, a larger cultural process of disambiguating culture, disambiguating education. Like, I think as a parent as well, something that we should explore more widely is how do we, how do we have these moments that, that cannot be easily quantifiable? Now, I'm not saying don't post your images on, uh, on social media or, or things like that. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not, saying, not in that camp of hide in a box. I'm, I'm just saying this technology is so far from you know, what it pretends to be doing that you should, you should not say, oh, the, the, this doesn't count as much as the things that I can quantify. As a designer and a, and a design educator, I'm, I'm also, I, I teach information design. So, so, so we teach our students how to analyze the data, how to communicate the data, how to do all of that. But then you get to that point, which is very, very basic. But from that point on, there's so much you, you should be doing that is based on culture and based on, on things that, are, that cannot be easily quantified. And that's where, where you shine. Um, you know, there, there are schools in design that, that, that are like, make everything seamless, right? Make, make experiences seamless. Make sure that the digital surfaces that you're creating or the digital visualizations that you're creating are like machine generated and there's like this, this strength and, and, uh, and truth in the machine. But there are other approaches in design that, that are like simple design, like saying this is a product that has history. This is a product that has humans that made it. This is the process it was made in. Here are some glitches, not, not as aesthetics, but glitches as somebody did this. This is, this is not coming from the data coming from the soil of the earth. This has been collected, analyzed, processed, manipulated, and then put you in a, in a perspective that you can respond to it. You can, you, you can somehow say, this is, this is where I stand in front of this thing. The reality is that we're probably in a data bubble now. Mm -hmm. you know, there, there are so many companies from, from Facebook on all the way down to every little startup that has a big data play as its exit strategy. And data is really just a subset of marketing. And marketing's never taken up more than around 3% of a gross domestic or national product. Mm -hmm. So if there's a data crash, I mean, in some ways, that's a good thing. Um, but do you, see, do you see that coming? It's, it's something that I both fear and hope for. Because like any uh, crush, right? we need to realign ourselves to, to what is actually going on because the, the myth of, uh, of big data is so rarely challenged. You know, it, it's almost one-to-one -one free markets, right? It's, 
Like, if there's anything wrong with the free market, it's only because it's not free market enough. enough. Like, and if, if there's anything wrong with big data, it's because we don't have all of the data yet. But we're just around the corner. So then you're going to start a book on, on data skepticism. Yeah, so um, I'm working with Catherine D'Ignazio on a very, very, very early stages about data skepticism. So, so there's so, so much excitement around data. We want people who are excited about data, excited about visualization of data, analysis of data, advanced algorithms, all, all of these things, all of this knowledge waiting for us at the tip of our, of our fingers to, to say, oh, if I'm really excited about this thing, the coolest thing to do right now is data skepticism because it's breaking for everybody. Like everybody's, everybody has the, these expectations from data that are not actually met uh, completely and they, and they follow this, uh, this free market uh, idea of, oh, I just need to collect a, few, a bit more data points and then everything would be fine. But, but actually, if we, this is exactly the right point to suggest that Let's be a bit skeptical about the data, and you'll actually get better analysis, better insights. At the same time, you'll put data in its right place in culture. It's this thing that is valuable. We should not stop doing that, but we should stop thinking that this is, you know, the, ste the next step for humanity. Right, because if anything, it's the, it's the, if it is a step, it would be a step to mitigate the impact of humanity on reality itself. Mm -hmm. There's this imagined idea that, that there's reality as a layer, and then there's um, another layer that is almost like almost there, which is data. It presents itself through technology and through machines, as if, especially through sensors that, that are as if objectively collecting the data, right? This is just the way reality speaks to us. Reality speaks to us in zeros and ones. That's kind of the, the myth of big data. And if we haven't found all of the data in reality, like the, the idea of data collection, I think I have a problem with the term data collection. It's not there. You're making it. It's data creation. Or data projection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so there's a lot of things, like Catherine that I'm working with uh, has been writing about this uh, and, and working around these themes. Uh, fr from from other perspectives, so she wrote a very interesting article. What would a, a feminist data visualization look like? So so the 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 approach there was like this is a very um, this is the way men see the world. Mm. Um, like they control everything. Everything has an address, a, a quantity, and and you know even if we don't go beyond humans, like half of humanity at least have different approaches for, for, for this uh, uh, for, for this thing and I, and um, and she's again not, not suggesting we should not be working with data but we should put it in its place and use it for what it's what it's good for and then celebrate the other side exactly and how do we access that we access it like we've always accessed it and because uh, what's happening now is that we're devaluing it. It's, it's back to, the, to, to my point about the bias against one, what we cannot quantify. We work with data and therefore we're, we're more objective, right? That's the way that people collect data about things that humans are doing and they don't understand. So they, they, they project data on top of it and they, then they say, oh, we can understand that instead. Like the clicks, right? The assumption is that if you've clicked something, it means that you're interested in it. Let's play with that. Every, every opportunity for us to perform, to, to, to perform data, to use data as, as an opportunity 
not to put things in the boxes, but actually, you know, create other boxes that are, uh, or, or explore other boxes that have not been created and maybe would never be created. That's life. That's, that's what's so exciting about it. Right. It almost brings back, turns public space into a performance space again. And yeah. it, in a way, you can think of data centers as public space. Like th that's the f furthest thing for, from public as possible, right? Like, like the, the, the Google um, ethos of uh, making the world's uh, information globally accessible and exclusively exploitable. We can play there. Every, every interface is an invitation to expand, right? On, on one hand, you're being put in a box and, and you're being told like, this is the kind of communication that you're doing. You can only like this post. But then what happens if you go and like every post? Yes, it would create like crazy um, uh, responses from everybody. But then what, what is the next? If, if somebody liked something that somebody else didn't think they should be liking, what is the next step? Conversation. So right. Is it, Right, you're almost doing, you're doing to the, the data IP space what algorithms did to the stock market. You know, just go in there and now, you know, 99% of stock market activity is that. It disconnected it from that, you know, so-called reality, but at least it exposed it as the abstraction that it is. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a, a bumper sticker, like a, a IP on your IP, you know, that's really what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But it's all in fun, you know? Yeah, th there's something so playful about it. That we don't want, uh, or, you know, I, I, I think th there are things that you should be very concerned about when it comes to information. And there are, thing there are opportunities, especially if you're working um, with extreme situations like activists working in uh, hostile environments, um, should definitely encrypt their data and hide and, and do their communication in boxes. But... Um, they're at war. Yeah. That's different. But, but it, to but militarize our public self-expression and our activity exactly. to be told, oh, it's your responsibility as an internet user to have, you know, third level government, you know. Yeah, what kind of person are you for, for not encrypting your emails? Like, right. we, we should not leave our lives. And I think we leave an important percentage of our life is, is being done through these networks. It should not be under the assumption of war. And, and, if, and if we want to fight back, we should, like, you want to fight back, create more data. Like, you're just, you're just protecting yourself if, if you're hiding, which is legitimate when you need to hide or for people right. who, who need to hide more than others. And, and, but and the so way on. to fight back against the hostile environment itself is, is, not, through in, it's not through an arms race, yeah. but by, by uh, almost d disempowering the, the presumption of war through play. That Which is human, you know, and that's really that's and it's playful and it's that's fun. the way Team Human fights, you yeah. know. So, so ad nauseum is is up and running. We can get this. Yeah, yeah. We basically we just released version two, and version two is on Chrome and Firefox and, and, and other browsers, and you can just go and install it on ad nauseum.io. Cool. Yeah. And it's in the App Store? No, it's a yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, we got it on the on the Google Web Store. Now, it seems like they haven't noticed yet. Yeah. And we, we were just like fixing, uh, we didn't expect it to, to get there yeah. at all. But then we didn't expect it to happen so fast. And it's there. We just fixed a few bugs. And now we're going to announce it to the world. Now, now they might take it off, which is a great, great story. Right. And they might keep it in, which is a great story. 
right? Yeah, yeah. Win, win if you win if you win, win if you lose. Yeah, exactly. beautiful. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. The show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Thanks to all our supporters and teammates, Zago, who designed our logo and helped kickstart Team Human, Meetup for connecting people out in the real world, start your own meetup at meetup.com, Aaron Dignan at theready.com, and to listener supporters who have made contributions to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism through the website. Our show music is thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.